Welcome to Tame Pain, where we are guiding the path to your goals. Pain is a top reason individuals seek healthcare, and our mission is to empower those dealing with chronic pain through education and guidance to engage in their life again. So whether you are dealing with chronic aches and pains and looking for advice, or a healthcare clinician looking for guidance to help others, we are here to help. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Tame Pain Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ray. This is episode two, and today we're going to be talking about what is pain. We recently just released a blog on our new website, tamepain.com, that dives into this topic and hopefully provides tangible takeaways for a new understanding of pain, where we also discuss some scenarios for self-management strategies and some insight into how we help folks rehab through pain and injury. Today's podcast is going to expand on the discussion a little bit more. I also know a lot of people prefer a learning method from audio or visual beyond just reading a blog. So this will accompany and kind of build on the blog post as well for those who would rather kind of listen to this discussion versus go read, which is perfectly okay. So a quick announcement, our low back pain rehab template is now available on our website. We have two options. Tier one, you can run the template completely on your own. That price point is $64.99. That gets you a PDF guide and walkthrough, as well as our low back pain ebook. Both of those can be utilized to kind of help with education through your situation. And then the template is on Google Sheets, and it is 12 weeks of programming that we've written out to kind of help folks work through some of those movements that are typically more symptomatic when dealing with low back pain, such as flexion, extension, and rotation, and helps them build back towards doing specifically resistance training and cardiospiratory activity. From a resistance training standpoint, that's going to be focusing on major movements, compound movements like overhead press, squat, bench press, and deadlift. We will be releasing an add-on in the future for our weightlifters specific to clean and jerk and snatch. So look for that in the future. Some of the issues that folks may have been given as far as from like a diagnostic label standpoint that this template would be appropriate for That would be lumbar osteoarthritis, spinal degenerative disc disease, facet syndrome, scoliosis, the nonspecific low back pain label, muscle strain, ligament sprain, lumbar disc herniations, spinal stenosis, whether central canal or foraminal, and peripheral nerve entrapment. So we try to take a multifactorial approach to pain, but those are some labels that folks commonly are given before they talk to us about their low back pain. This template has several phases that I will walk you through. There is phase one, which is simply trying to help with reducing your symptoms while getting you active to tolerance. Phase two, specifically focusing on increasing your loading capacity while building back towards your baseline. And then phase three, our hope is you return to some type of normative programming and training. So that's tier one. Again, that's $64.99. Now with tier two, you get everything that I just mentioned, except you're also going to get the ability to consult with a rehab clinician. You'll have a 30-minute audio video consultation with the clinician. They can talk through your experience, make any individualized recommendations that they feel like should happen for the template before you get started, work through any concerns or questions you may have. And then after that initial consultation, Because we have our templates now all on Google Drive, we actually will have access to your personalized template. When you make the purchase, you get your own individual folder on our Google Drive, which we can go in and access and see how you're progressing. So with tier two, that does cost a little bit more at $114.99, and you're able to then have weekly check-ins with the clinician remotely. They'll take a look at your template. You can leave any notes that you want them to be aware of, and once a week, they'll check in with you. So those are our two options, tier one and tier two for the low back. Those are now available for purchase on our website. Once you make the purchase, you will get an email to you kind of walking you through implementing the template and then also specifically what to do if you purchase tier two to set up that consultation. If you have any questions, please email us, just contact at tamepain.com. The next template that our Google automation team is working on is going to be the shoulder template and then the knee template and then the neck pain template. So that's where we're headed for the next several weeks. So let's talk about a question that we often get at Tame Pain. Now, I've been asked about this topic 
I was thinking back in preparation for recording this today to the first time I probably recorded a podcast with someone or personally about what is pain. And that probably began around 2016, 2017. I would be interested in going back and listening to those podcasts and seeing how have my thoughts and opinions changed since then. And I think if anything, as you learn more about a topic, your opinions become much more nuanced and you are usually applying a lot of caveats to the discussion. So I want to try to keep this as practical and tangible as possible. I will inevitably talk a little bit about definitions. I will also talk about models and then probably layer in some philosophy of pain, but from a standpoint that you guys can find it beneficial, whether you're a clinician or someone who's just trying to understand more about their own pain. So the three main questions I'm going to try to answer today is, you know, usually when someone starts experiencing pain, they wonder, what does this pain mean? How should I respond to the experience? And specifically, should I go see someone like a doctor to help me with this experience? Maybe I feel like I might need imaging or some type of investigation. Maybe you've been trying to self-manage and you're really struggling with the situation and not sure how to manage. So we're going to try to provide some insight into this discussion today. So let's dive in. So what exactly is pain? The answer I've been going with for the past several years now is ultimately pain is an individual experience. You know, as a society, we've codified our language for communication abilities so we can kind of be on somewhat the same page. You know, I won't know your pain fully because it is an individual experience, but I can certainly relate and empathize and have uh, communication with you about your experience and reach some mutual level of understanding. So we have various words. When we look at the research data of when children develop language, uh, specific to pain language, you're looking at about at the age of three, they start forming meaningful words for communication. Before three, they're probably saying words like ouch and ow. But by three, we're probably seeing the emergence of the word, specifically pain. It may vary upwards of the age of five or six. And so we know that pain is a linguistic communication, that we have various words afforded to us to communicate to other members of our society that, hey, we're having a distressing experience that we've labeled as painful that we need assistance with. Uh, and we may need some, some immediate aid or long-term aid. The other component that I talk to with people about outside of just uh, linguistic communication is we have other behavioral uh, ways to communicate our facial expressions. We may grimace during a certain experience or wince. We may alter our movement patterns. So we may change the way we move. We talk about that often as like antalgic gait or antalgic posture. We're changing how we're walking or standing or sitting. We also may change our daily activities. You know, if I'm dealing with chronic low back pain, I may be apprehensive or even avoidant of wanting to bend over and pick things up off of the ground. So we certainly can alter uh, both who we are as a person, but then the ways in which we engage our world as well. And so from this understanding, you know, where we have a foundation to build from, from a communication standpoint, where we learn about pain from society, but then we individualize as well based on our own personal experiences throughout life. And so it certainly is a learned experience and then learned behavioral responses to such experience. Our old way of thinking was very much what we call biomedically rooted, which means that we attribute any symptoms, even pain or others directly to some type of tissue issue. And so that could be uh, pathoanatomical. So can I image you and find some problem that we think needs fixing? Can I look for some type of structural deviation, say for the spine, if we're finding osteophytes, which are just bony outgrowths or lumbar disc herniations or scoliosis or in essence, we're approaching the discussion of pain as this is a problem and the problem can be isolated to some type of structural, pathoanatomical or pathological issue or disease state that we as healthcare clinicians want to directly or indirectly intervene upon to quote unquote fix the human. This biomedical model of approaching pain experiences is very much like going to see a car mechanic in which we're trying to find the car part that is potentially worn out or just needs replacing to get the car to operate the way that we expect it to. Luckily, and also somewhat unfortunately, we are not cars. It would make our jobs as healthcare clinicians a lot easier if I could just scan you, find the problem, put my finger on the problem and fix that problem. 
And we've approached pain for many, many decades this way. And it's led to a lot of unnecessary investigations and interventions and very real harmful effects by approaching people as if they are machines that are breaking and wearing down and needing fixing. Now, sometimes we may need to specifically intervene on certain things that we find, but usually pain is being accompanied with other symptoms like weight loss, weight gain that's unintentional, fever, rash, dealing with some type of recent trauma like a high fall or a motor vehicle accident, some type of ongoing infection. There are scenarios in which you're presenting with more than just simply pain and which would lead the clinician to say, hey, these collection of symptoms are adding up to be a sign that we may be dealing with something else, a fracture, a systemic infection, a cancer, some other type of maybe potentially a neurological issue if we're dealing with acute onset paralysis or loss of sensation. Those would send us down the path of wanting to investigate more. When we're outside of these kind of clear-cut, so to speak, situations, things get a lot more murky and we really struggle with helping the person deal with their pain experience when we're not trying to do these investigations and find specific problems to fix. Because of our biomedical indoctrination and training as healthcare clinicians, we tend to approach the situation with this mindset of find the problem and fix the problem and everything will be right in the world again. And because of this, unfortunately, we perpetuated a lot of unnecessary imaging, investigations, and unnecessary interventions. Where this really goes awry, especially for the patient, is they become worried and concerned in which, why isn't my pain getting better? What's wrong with me? This may evoke what we call a holy grail search for a diagnostic label to give a specific intervention. And this could go on for decades for this human's life, unfortunately. They may greatly alter their life trajectory from, you know, I thought I was going to go on and do this life activity, be this athlete, be a musician, be this type of employee or worker or entrepreneur. And they really start questioning that life path for fear of the meaning of pain, whether they can cope with that experience. And their future becomes very concerning and distraught. They may even stop planning their future because they just don't think that it's going to be what they want it to be. So they can become stuck is the best way that I could put it. And so they may reflect on the past and kind of romanticize the past of what once was and the future is not there. And so we're kind of stuck in this experience of pain, this feeling of helplessness, of not knowing what is the meaning of this pain? Why can't healthcare clinicians help me? I seem to go to 10 different clinicians with 10 different answers who give me 10 different problems. You know, they go see the physician who says it's degenerative disc disease in their low back. They go see the physical therapist or chiropractor who says they have a leg length inequality or misaligned hips or tight muscles or weak muscles. They find, you know, quote unquote adhesions or trigger points to release. They want to stick needles in them, tape them, cup them, stretch them, have them lift weights. Uh, they go see some other clinician who's kind of uh, an intervention du jour is something else. Maybe it's nutritional related. And so it's kind of this just endless search for what is wrong with me, what needs to be done, and how do I fix it? And I don't blame healthcare clinicians or the individual who's having the pain experience. I think it's perfectly human and normative to feel as though you're not living as you want to which means there is a problem that has to be able to be fixed. And so I think that's what sends people down that path. And unfortunately, as healthcare clinicians, we want to, to help. So we also are looking for what's the problem here. And so this is why the, the second podcast for us at Tame Pain is, well, what is pain? Because we have to have a conversation about this to ultimately get to answering the why am I in pain conversation. And so understanding that, A, pain is a word that we apply to our human experiences, the word society gave us, and B, that pain is an individual experience, we're much more capable of listening to the human in front of us, understanding what you're telling us about your experience, and then figuring out, well, do we actually need to investigate further in this situation? Can we instead provide reassurance and guidance and how to re-engage and self-manage? 
you know, one of the things that we're seeing in the development and sustainment of chronic pain is this feeling of helplessness and brokenness in which the clinician's being looked to for fixing the situation and the person's giving up their self-efficacy and autonomy. By definition, patient is considered a passive kind of entity, a person, and the clinician's being sought out to help and aid the person. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable word to utilize in those scenarios. The patient is giving up some autonomy. The question becomes, can the clinician act based on current research evidence and empower that person to be an agent in their healthcare. So shifting them from patient to agent, well, how do we do that? We have to have collaborative education about pain, the meaning thereof, and what, if anything, needs to be done to move the person forward towards their goal. Now, ideally, we're giving them tools to self-manage, a new understanding of pain, empowering them and reassuring them that it's gonna be okay yes, pain is distressing for most folks in most scenarios. But the good news is at this time, having this consultation with you, we've not identified any symptoms that are indicative of signs of something that needs to be investigated. And that's a good thing because now we can focus on how do we move forward from here. So let's take just a minute and use an example about this individualization of pain experiences. Something that's super relatable to me. Uh, In the blog, I talk about resistance training and delayed onset muscle soreness. You know, if you take someone who's never or has not been physically active recently or has never resistance trained, and let's say they aren't working with a coach or clinician and they get really zealous and they're like, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do this line of machines for all major muscle groups. And I'm going to do each machine for three sets to failure. And they do that. And if you're if you resistance train regularly, you're already saying, oh, to failure for all major muscle groups. Ooh, this is going to be interesting tomorrow. Well, they wake up the next day and as you suspect, they uh, report body wide aches and pains and they are apprehensive to move and go through their day normatively. And they're worried about going back to the gym. Now, this individual may label these experiences as painful and even injurious. Whereas if you took someone like me or others who regularly resistance train, A, that same stimulus may not be enough to have any adaptation for us. But B, if it is, we may not look at this as painful or injurious. Instead, oftentimes, a lot of us look at it as a badge of honor, like, yes, I got sore. I did enough. I had enough novel stimulus to have muscle soreness. And so we think that that means we're progressing towards our goals and adapting appropriately. So it could be a very similar, if not the same stimulus applied to a multitude of individuals. And you're going to see a pretty large spectrum of this isn't, you know, completely neutral. This isn't painful to this is extremely painful to me to perhaps even a small subset. This is pleasurable to me. So we have kind of this spectrum of responses towards the same stimulus. And, And this is oftentimes what we see in experimental research where we apply the same stimulus to a group of individuals and we ask them, is this painful or is it not painful or is it pleasure? And the study I often cite these days is Madden 2019, where they applied a heat stimulus. Uh, I forget the exact jewels that they applied. And they had people on a scale of negative 50 to positive 50 rate their experience where zero to negative 50 was not painful and zero to 50 was painful. And they increase the intensity of the stimulus throughout. And you see from the very beginning, from you know participant zero to participant 100, I, I'm not entirely recalling how many were in the study, but it's just across the spectrum from negative 50 to positive 50 of reporting whether this is not painful or is painful, same stimulus. You know, anecdotally, something to me, I grew up in the mixed martial arts community. If you've ever attended a seminar with me, I've talked about this where I didn't make the eighth grade basketball team. And my dad was like, you're going to do something. Uh, And me, I was a a video game kind of kid. I was somewhat lazy. I wasn't interested in team-based sports, really. He was like, you're going to do something. I'll give you some time to pick. I never picked. So one day I came home and he was like, get in the truck. Uh, I'm from South Carolina, kind of a very rural area in upstate South Carolina. So I get in the truck. I have no idea what's happening or where we're going. And we pull up to this building in downtown Anderson, South Carolina, and I look at it and it is a karate studio. And he's like, I've enrolled you in karate. You start today. Get out of the truck. <laughs> Very much my, my dad's type of approach. And so I go in, I get started with it. And I was nervous you know, and anxious about the situation, didn't know what to expect. But eventually I fell in love with it and 
went on to compete and did other styles as well, uh, well before this was called like mixed martial arts. You know, we're talking middle school for me, eighth grade. I graduated from high school in 03, so somewhere in the 90s, like 95, right? The culture of martial arts is there's a lot of positives as far as instilling integrity and honesty and discipline and honor and building confidence, especially at that age for kids. But you also get very accustomed to being punched and kicked and arm barred and leg barred and choked out. And these are normative aspects of the culture. We're not out to hurt one another, but we're sparring and doing kumite and grappling. And yeah, you know, I often joke you've not lived unless someone's choked you out with your gi. So for those who've experienced that. If I were in that setting and someone punched me in the face or kicked me, A, I may not even report that as painful because I'm accepting of the situation and I've been conditioned to deal with that situation. Now, if you took me or someone else out into the street, I'm walking through you know, downtown Harrisonburg or Bridgewater and out of nowhere, someone walks up and punches me right in the face, I may feel quite differently. I may report that as painful and injurious because I wasn't, A, I wasn't prepared for it. The context and environment had changed. If it's someone who's never been in these types of situations, then they most certainly have a lower tolerance for that type of experience to then report pain, right? And so we can condition ourselves over time. The one article I cite, uh, Balicki 2015, talks about ballerinas. You know, if we all try to put our body weight on our toes, like the points of our toes, Many of us would describe that as painful and injurious and ballerinas become conditioned and do it over time and are quite successful at it. And it's a part of their sport. So I often talk about that. So the next question we have to think of is, you know, we've talked about, well, what is pain? What is the meaning of pain? And this one really, I think, is what people are ultimately asking because it gets at the next question we'll talk about after this one is how should I respond? And so our meaning of pain that we assign is indoctrinated socioculturally, and we didn't really start thinking about this universally until the 70s. The Need for a Taxonomy was released in 1972. The International Association for Study for Pain was being formed, and they wanted to give a universal language. And so the first universal definition we had for pain was way back in the 1970s. Uh, the one we're going to talk about today, they updated it. In 2020, they released an update and the definition now presented by the IASP is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Now, I'm not going to focus on the nitty gritty of this definition too much. The main takeaways are it's a lived experience. It's in including sensory and emotional of the individual. And then it's also potentially associated with tissue damage or may not. And so that's a really key point, that potential part means someone may report pain and we can't find any tissue damage. We can't find a pathology. We can't find a pathoanatomical issue. Often a lot of people, clinicians and general public think, well, this means biology is not influencing someone's experience. And that must mean that it's all in their head, quote unquote. So it's a uh, psychosomatic, which I'm not a fan of that, that phrase. My response to them is, no, we can't really isolate out biology or psychology or sociology. That's ultimately what kind of went wrong and was lost in translation of the biopsychosocial model from George Engel in the 1970s. Engel came up with a new healthcare model in the 70s to say, hey, let's move beyond biomedicine. Let's expand our horizons so we're more inclusive of other variables outside of looking for these tissue issue or biological problems to try and fix. We got really, really good at creating problems, oftentimes without evidence to say it's actually a problem, giving a label that then doesn't really lead us anywhere meaningful. So he was really trying to overall all of healthcare, not just pain. But we, a lot of people have adopted his approach and his framework to the discussion of pain. Where this goes wrong in clinical practice is usually folks who are new to this information are trying to say, well, is this a biological silo issue? Is this a psychological issue? And is this a sociological issue? And we even see this in my world with research from having psychologically informed research. So we're creating various quantitative 
tools to assess psychological influence, anxiety, depression, um, assessing uh, kinesiophobia, catastrophizing, uh, so on and so forth. And really the way we try to approach this discussion of tame pain is it's a, it's a human individual experience, right? And so it takes all of these components to give rise to the lived experience of pain. You have to have biology and biology is always involved because we're embodied creatures. We have a physical body that's living. That's usually what people can see, the third person perspective. And we have a lived body, which is our individual first person perspective experience how we interact with the world through our living body. And so we can't separate that out because we have we're, we have physical bodies. The next thing is, is if we're conscious, we're having thoughts and beliefs and emotions that are influencing how we experience our own body and how we experience the world around us. And our experiences and our perceptions can shape these world experiences that we're having and our willingness to engage or not engage our world or alter how we're engaging our world. And then sociologically, where we really, really struggle with is the social cultural indoctrination, but then also all of the other things that come with living in a society, others' opinions, others' influence on us and our experiences, our societal expectations for pain and helping someone with pain. And what does that mean? And and so all of these things are influencing someone's pain experience. And our job isn't to try to tease out, you know, is this biological, psychological, or sociological? I did a, a paper with Dr. Stilwell, Peter Stilwell out of McGill University, and Dr. Sabrina Connix out of Germany. And we did a paper on chronic pain and affordances, and we use a game analogy uh, to talk about, you know, a more updated approach, which is called an activism. I'll probably do a future podcast specifically on an activism, uh, potentially with them as well. Hopefully that paper will be out in the future. It's under review currently. And so let's circle back to the ISP's new definition. They gave a couple of key point takeaways that I think folks should be aware of. And so I think these are even more beneficial than the definition. The ones I want to focus on is, A, pain is always a personal experience that is influenced to varying degrees by biology, psychology, and sociology. That's what we just talked about. Through their life experiences, individuals learn the concept of pain. That's what we've been talking about as well. And a person's report of a pain experience should be respected. And I want to add the caveat believed. Um, there's unfortunately, especially in the chronic pain realm, a lot of stigmatization where folks kind of apply a scarlet letter to someone uh, and stigmatize them and minimize them and don't believe them that they're in pain or say that they have a mental health issue and it's all psychological, refer out, they're pill-seeking, they're malingering. A lot of these situations I'm, I'm not a fan of. And so I think it's important to remember we should respect and, and believe people's pain situation. Even if we believe they're pill-seeking, they still are in search of and in need of help and so we have to figure out how we better approach those situations versus labeling people malingering and just pill-seeking. So we've talked about what is pain exactly, what is the meaning of pain, and how should I re respond? Well, the meaning of pain transitions into our response to pain. And so in thinking about this, the way we try to approach it at Tame Pain is how do I give you self-management tools to work through these situations. I'm happy to be a guide and our team is happy to be guides in the process of management. And we don't think people should just suck it up and deal with the situation on their own. We have no issue with helping, but ideally when working with us, our hope is that we educate and empower with self-management strategies. Should you find yourself in a painful situation again, you feel empowered and emboldened and more capable to self-manage. That still doesn't mean we expect you to do it without help. Pain is a distressing experience for many, and it's completely human and normal to feel lost and unsure on how to move forward. We try to come in and provide education and clarity to the situation and figure out what next steps can be taken or need to be taken to get the outcomes that we're looking for. Now, we don't set the expectation that folks should be pain-free. Pain is by nature a part of our human existence and is here to stay. It's very much thinking about trials and tribulations in life. You know, if we remove all challenges out of life, we would probably weaken our dynamic system we have as human beings. 
And when we were eventually faced with a challenge, we would struggle to work through that. It may even mean the end of our existence. I often talk about this in my classes here at Bridgewater from an inflammation standpoint. And people are like, oh, we need to get rid of inflammation. Oh, we need to increase inflammation. There's a lot of murky discussion on the topic. So the way I usually frame it is, well, we don't want to completely eradicate all inflammation because that is also a way in which we respond to environmental pathogens and infections, bacterial or viral, that's integral to our survival. Even exercise-induced inflammatory response, you know, breaking down tissue with physical activity, we need a response, inflammatory response to heal the area. So things are much more nuanced, and I wouldn't want to eradicate our pain experiences because they do have a adaptive role on some level for us, but can also become a blockade to us engaging our life unnecessarily. The way to think about this is when pain tends to persist in these chronic pain situations, it sometimes can take our body, which should be in the background, you know, this kind of seamless interaction with our world and can move the body to the forefront and kind of obfuscate our ability to see and engage our world. I talk about about, uh, clothing today. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see I have a gray Under Armour polo on. Um, If you're listening to me now, you know what I'm currently wearing in addition to other clothing, obviously. And so when I put this on this morning, I maybe gave attention to what color do I want to wear today? Does it match my shoes? Am I going to be comfortable? What's the temperature like? But once I put the T-shirt on or the, the polo on and went on with my life, it fades into the background. Most of us don't go around thinking about the clothing that we have on our bodies all day, every day. Now, I may, on the way to work or at lunch, spill coffee on myself, the T-shirt or polo reemerges into my attention. And then I realize, you know, it is what it is. There's not much I can do about it now. Fades back into the background. Chronic pain has a way of taking the body and moving the body from the background into the foreground. And part of our job is helping the body fade back into the background. So you have seamless interaction with your daily living as much as possible. And your attention can be focused on those tasks you're trying to accomplish. And that's a process. We do not expect to have a consultation with someone over one hour and overall beliefs and behaviors. What we tell people is we're happy to kind of guide this process with monthly programming. And I usually tell folks, I don't think our monthly programming, there, there isn't a magical exercise or activity prescription that means we never experience pain again, given pain is a human experience. All we can do is try to give some control over the situation. What I really think is helpful to people is that continued communication with educated and trusted clinicians that can talk to you about your individual pain experience, manage through any fears and concerns and beliefs you may have, and help guide the path towards your goals. That's ultimately what I think matters is that communication over time. We see that people will lose self-efficacy and autonomy and even maybe develop some fear and apprehension towards daily activities. Or on the other end of the spectrum, they may be experiencing pain to decide that, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to push through this. And they keep kind of poking the bear, so to speak. And so we can kind of come in and help figure out how do we alter variables to help bring you some relief in this process while building back towards your goals. And so with that in mind, we talk about tolerable pain. And tolerable pain just simply means that you're able to engage your world and be active to your tolerance level without exceeding your kind of upper limit for pain tolerance. We all have an individual upper limit. One reason I'm not a fan of the word hyperalgesia or catastrophizing, both of those words imply that an external individual knows what normative pain is and normative thoughts, beliefs, and emotions and responses are to pain. No one can dictate that. The individual decides, is this at their tolerance level or above their threshold? And we can't try to objectify that situation. And so I tell folks, you know, it's up to you as the individual. What is your tolerance? And the good thing is, is as we re-engage the things that are meaningful to us in our life and the body fades back into the background, our confidence and self-efficacy builds and we're no longer noticing, but our tolerance has increased over time. And now we're more capable and we're more engaging. And so it helps to see, and the clinician can also shine a light on this and say, especially in those more symptomatic time periods that happens to everyone through this process, hey, look, I understand that you're having a flare up, but it's okay. 
that look at all the things you've accomplished in the previous weeks, and we're only going to continue to build from here. How do we modify things accordingly right now in the moment to help you cope through this process? So we talk to people about not feeling debilitated during or after activity, and we qualify debilitated as feeling not as capable as you were before this symptom spike, or finding that your attentional focus is constantly on that body region that you're experiencing pain. So let's shift next into how do I regulate my activity? And you're gonna kind of see the exercise scientists come out of me here. I try to be very practical in my information with this. So I would think about it from a periodizing kind of approach. And I don't get too concerned with periodization, but the variables that we have that are tangible to us are the type or mode of activity that you're engaging in. So is it resistance training? Is it cardiospiratory activity? Is it a specific sport? The next one is frequency. How often are we engaging that activity? Volume kind of varies based on the type of activity. If it's resistance training, we usually quantify volume with sets times reps times load. Uh, you'll also hear us talk about that as tonnage. For cardiorespiratory activity, volume is going to be much more along the lines of distance traveled, work completed, or time. The next one up is intensity, which has a little more nuance to it. Intensity is twofold. You have internal and external intensity. Let's start with internal first. Internal intensity, it's going to be your subjective rating of difficulty, fatigue, and symptoms. That's the common one folks leave out in these scenarios. How difficult and fatiguing or symptomatic did you find this activity? And so we can rate that. Session RPE would be the whole activity after you've completed it on a scale of 1 to 10. How difficult, fatiguing, and symptomatic did you find this on 1 to 10? If we're seeing folks regularly rating things 8s, 9s, and 10s, we're probably going to have a conversation about regulating activity. So we're not seeing that as often. There's no reason, whether from a physical activity adaptation standpoint or from a pain adaptation standpoint, that we should see 8s, 9s, and 10s all the time on the session rating. The other one would be uh, set RPE, set rate of perceived exertion. That's on a scale of 0 to 10. And so we're having people rate the difficulty of the set that they just completed in resistance training. And so a 10 would be max effort, couldn't repeat that, that particular set or load again. We will also often couple this with reps and reserve. So if rate of perceived exertion is on a scale of zero to 10, a linear one, inverse that and you have reps and reserve, so reps and reserve starts at 10 and goes to zero. So if you rate something in RPE of zero, the assumption is you could have done 10 more repetitions at that load. If you rate something in RPE of five, then you could have done five more repetitions at that load. If you rate something in RPE of 10, then your RIR is zero, you could have not done another repetition at that load. And a lot of people want to try to take a perfectionistic approach to this. Like, ah, I don't know, maybe I could have done one more rep. We don't advocate for that. You know, we look at this as we're, we're trying to follow broad trends over time. So I'm not so concerned of perfection and accuracy and precision from the like most immediate moment or even session to session. I'm more looking at week to week, month to month and year to year. And are we making improvements broadly towards your goals? So that's how we use auto-regulation. It really gives people autonomy in changing their activity as they need to, whether that's increasing, decreasing loading, increasing, decreasing sets or reps, increasing, decreasing frequency. And we're there when you sign up for programming to help make these decisions along the way. The way that internal intensity would be approached for, say, cardiorespiratory activities, very similar. We can use rate of perceived exertion, scale of zero to 10 for difficulty, fatigue, and symptoms. We could use uh, heart rate as well, and we often do that for endurance athletes that we work with. We couple target heart rate zones. Uh, my bias is towards heart rate reserve because it accounts for someone's resting heart rate, and we'll couple that with RPE. And so we'll make those calculations and give insight there. External intensity is also dependent on the type of activity. You know, for resistance training, it's going to be load lifted. For cardiospiratory activity, it could be the trainer environment in which you're performing the activity. And then it could also be how quickly are you getting the work or activity completed or distance completed. You know, if I run a mile in 10 minutes versus six minutes, my intensity has certainly gone up for me. 
and uh, my external intensity has, has increased because my duration has shortened for the same distance. And so those are the kind of ways that we talk about intensity. And then duration is just the length of activity, week, month, year, that someone's been engaging in it. Now we tell folks, just like any goal acquisition in life, these are nonlinear processes. You know, you don't go and set out down the path of accomplishing something. Well, you may, and you think it's gonna be point A to point B, and it's just linear. Oftentimes it's like a country music song, right? There's a lot of highs and lows. My dog died, my wife left me, I lost my business, uh, whatever it may be. I went to the bar, the bar was closed. During those more stressful time periods, we need to regulate activity differently. Whereas if I'm you know, eating uh, adequate caloric intake for my body composition and physical activity goals, I'm sleeping adequate quantity and quality, I'm managing other life stressors, and I'm regulating dosage of activity, then I may feel capable of doing much more than on those not so great days for me. It's very similar to emotions. Uh, I would love to wake up every single day and feel like it's rainbows and sunshine, but inevitably a storm will enter life. The question is, do I feel empowered and capable to manage through that storm until I get to blue skies again? So that's how we work with folks through uh, regulating the dosage of activity. If you go to the blog, you can read through kind of two scenarios that I outline, one for resistance training and then one for cardiorespiratory activity as well. If you're a clinician who's working with folks who are trying to manage pain and re-engage life and and they don't necessarily have specific goals, like I want to squat more or deadlift more, clean and jerk more or go to CrossFit competition or strongman competition or swim a particular distance or do a triathlon, then my usual advocacy is trying to make moves figuratively and literally towards meeting the World Health Organization's 2020 guidelines, which simply state 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate intensity activity. And we just talked about the ways in which you can quantify and qualify moderate intensity activity or 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous cardiorespiratory activity or a combination thereof, which means you can just intermix the two. And the one that's often left out is resistance training two times a week for all major muscle groups at moderate to high intensity as well. And that's for 18 to 64 year olds. Uh, I'll do a future post for the other age groups. We have it for pediatrics and we also have it for 65 plus and we also have it for during pregnancy as well. So you can go check out that citation if you want to read more on it. But ideally, we know most folks aren't meeting these physical activity guidelines. Uh, I recently wrapped up a study with some colleagues that's under review for medicine and science and sport and exercise. And we looked at the National Health Institute's National Health Information Survey, which is a survey that's been done every year since the 1970s and gives us a good handle on the health of Americans. This was a unique year, last year was, where they asked about physical activity and pain in the same year. So we were able to model this data and see. And so what we found is, you know, uh, very similar to prior guidelines. I think the CDC, the last time this was published, looked at who was meeting physical activity in general population. And it was, I think, 23%. We found, I think it was 24.1% our population, which is a 30,000 person sample size that's representative of general population in America. Uh, so 24% were meeting physical activity guidelines, both sets. If you take out resistance training, it goes up to around 40%, I want to say. And then if you look at just resistance training, only about 6% of people in America are meeting resistance training guidelines. Most folks are not meeting these guidelines. Now, what you also will see in our data and other research data is physical activity appears some level protective. Now, this is cross-sectional data. We can't draw uh, causation conclusions. But what we can say is we notice a reduction in chronic pain reporting uh, specifically two times uh, reduction in odds of reporting chronic pain if meeting both sets of guidelines. And so that's why I think this is a very tangible and beneficial way, not just for pain situations, but ho- overall holistic health and well-being and reducing you know, all-cause mortality, all the ways that we can die and do die as Americans, as well as comorbidities, as well as improving quality of life by having people try to meet these guidelines. Now, that doesn't mean take someone who's been completely inactive for two decades and go straight to these guidelines. It's behavior change, right? So it's working with them about their thoughts and beliefs around physical activity, just like we work with folks about their thoughts and beliefs around nutrition, their thoughts and beliefs around pain, and getting them to make moves figuratively and literally 
towards meeting these guidelines over time, but we have to foster behavior change. It's no different than the discussions we've been having with pain. And so from there, I think we can build people up and educate about pain and new understanding of pain to help re-engage life to tolerance while empowering people to manage their pain experiences. Finally, to close, you may be wondering, well, when should I seek out consultation, either remotely or in person? And my advocacy is if you're concerned about your pain experience or your injury, I would go ahead and find a trusted clinician that you can work with either locally or remotely, we would be more than happy to consult with you and help provide guidance. And again, it is completely normal as a human being when experiencing pain to be unsure about what the, the meaning of the experience is and how to respond. And it really helps to have a trusted clinician as a sounding board to rely on and lean on and guide you through this process. Now, a couple of examples and caveats of scenarios in which we think you should see in person if you're having pain and it's accompanied with a recent trauma, like a high fall or motor vehicle accident or impact trauma, you need to go get checked out locally and in person. If you're having progressive neurological symptoms, like I mentioned earlier, loss of bowel and bladder control, having uh, new onset paralysis and loss of sensation, if you're having other associated symptoms with pain, unintentional weight loss or gain, fever, a rash, bowel or bladder, uh, alterations in consistency and color, then these are some scenarios in which we think you should seek out in-person medical consultation. But we're pretty good at managing many scenarios remotely with folks and have been since 2018. So otherwise, we are happy to consult with you. So to close this out, key takeaways, pain is a multifactorial individual experience that often involves biology, psychology, and sociology, or does involve biology, psychology, and sociology. We cannot tease these out. This is an experience at the individual level that should be believed. And the good news is in most scenarios, we can't put a specific finger on a specific issue that must be intervened upon to get the outcomes that we're looking for. And this is good news because it means how do we look forward? How do we create a game plan to move you from where you're at to where you want to be, where I believe tame pain is the best in the industry to help this help individuals with pain re-engage their life to tolerance again. Now, I said I would do this in as many podcasts as I possibly can, where I'm going to answer questions from the audience. So the question that I'm going to talk about today, this is from Sean Doenius. I think I'm, please forgive me if I'm not saying your last name right. Uh, can biomechanics predict injury risk in sport? This is a great question and probably will be its own podcast in the future. So biomechanics just simply means how do we move? What are the ways with which we engage our world and move our bodies within our world? Um, and it's a whole subset of health and human sciences, of exercise science. And so with that understanding of how we move, A, we're not very good at prediction. And so, and that's in a lot of scenarios of life, but especially when dealing with pain, because pain as an outcome is a human experience that we all have. So the hope here is then, can we identify a risk factor and how people move that's modifiable that reduces the likelihood of an outcome in this context, pain. And so we have to have evidence demonstrating how someone moved is generalizable, meaning many other people move in the same way. And that then led to pain reporting. And this is where things start to fall apart. A risk factor by definition if we're going to measure something, we're going to assess something, we have to already know our outcome and we have to be able to demonstrate linkage of that measurable risk factor leading to the outcome. Now, we're already in, in trouble because this outcome is inevitable as human beings. We're just trying to reduce the likelihood. Right. And so then we have to ask, OK, we've identified a risk factor we're interested in. How people move biomechanics leads to pain reporting. Is this variable modifiable? Can we change how people move in a meaningful way to reduce the risk of this outcome? Or is biomechanics predominantly genetic and evolutionarily and learned over time influenced? And maybe it's not modifiable. And it doesn't matter because we can't influence this outcome in a meaningful way. So when we study these things, when we look at biomechanics, a lot of times it's, it's done in vitro, say on uh, other species' spines, if we're talking about low back pain, so pig or cow, and it's usually extracted dead spines. They're put into a device that flex extends or rotates for thousands upon thousands of cycles until something fractures or we can get a disc to herniate. And usually the extrapolation is, well, see, that happened. This is bad. You're going to get pain, which doesn't work very well because we're living, adaptable creatures. 
right? When I stress my system, within reason, my system's capable of stressing. Now, obviously, if I incur a stressor that's well above my tolerance, let's say someone hits my femur with a baseball bat as hard as they possibly can, that femur may fracture, right? But if I load my femur in a barbell back squat progressively over time from the barbell to 500 pounds, then my femur is adapting. That's Wolf's Law. We're gonna have increased bone mineral density. We're gonna have increased musculature surrounding it. My strength is gonna go up. We have hypertrophy. And so we're adaptable. But a lot of times it's the magnitude of the stimulus and the time frame in which that magnitude happens. And so that's much more indicative of leading to this idea of pain versus acutely how someone moved led to it. It's usually a question of loading. So those are the issues. We're not good at identifying biomechanical modifiable risk factors that then can reduce the likelihood of this outcome that's oftentimes inevitable anyways. When we look at it from, say, a lifting type approach, uh, a lot of people want to argue, well, we need to get you into a neutral spine and that way we can minimize the outcome of pain, right? A couple of caveats here is people tend to flex their spine and move the spine in a wide variety of ways based on task demand, learned behaviors, fatigue, difficulty, so on and so forth. And we may think what appears to the naked eye as neutral spine, flat back, but in actuality, when you look at kinematic studies, the spine, the lumbar spine specifically, is flexing throughout the range of motion of a squat and deadlift, oftentimes near max flexion. And so even if we come in and coach and cue that, the spine's still flexing kinematically. And we can't necessarily greatly alter that in a meaningful way to reduce the outcome. We can't connect those dots. So I usually try to think about things a little more broadly and dynamically. You know, if I'm coaching or cueing someone as a clinician or a coach with an athlete or patient or whomever, I want to give you a wide variety of ways to complete the task, right? Even as human beings, we have internal redundancies to keep us alive. Movement should be no different. And so I want you to have many, many ways to accomplish a tag. If I teach you one specific way to do it and at all costs you can't go outside of this parameter, then I've weakened the system. And so we have a lot of different ways to engage our world. So I'm much more about empowering and giving options versus constricting and constraining. How do I expand the horizon for movement and abilities? Uh, it's the same thing with my daughter. When she's learning how to do things, I try to stay as hands-off as I can. We have data that demonstrates that allowing someone to freely learn within reason, that that will expedite learning of a novel task. So I don't want to come in and constrain them down. So overall, the kind of big takeaway here is I'm much more focused on minimizing fear-mongering language with learning movements, empowering folks to find many, many ways that are advantageous for them to accomplish the task without worrying about the outcome of pain and necessarily injury. So hopefully that's helpful. I probably should do more future blogs and podcasts on this topic. Thank you guys for taking the time to listen to this. If you have any questions, please email us at contact at tamepain.com. I'll link in the podcast post, all of our social media accounts. And if this has been beneficial for you, please leave us a five-star review on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Spotify. Share with your friends to help us spread evidence-based information around pain. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time, I hope that you have a good day. Thanks for listening to Tame Pain, where we are guiding the path to your goals. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at tame underscore pain.